Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to go to the 25th chapter of the book of Matthew. And today we're continuing the messages on the second coming of Jesus, or simply put, the coming of Jesus. And today we're going to consider the first of three great parables that concern the coming of Jesus and that give us some singular specific message about the coming of Jesus. So we're going to look today at Matthew 25 verses 1 to 13. I uh, read some time ago about this couple who uh, were married, of course, and they were middle-aged. Their kids had already gone from home, and their days had become pretty routine, especially in the morning time. The wife was a little frustrated with her husband because he would get ready for work. You know, he would shave and shower and put on his clothes and come down to breakfast. And while he was eating breakfast, he'd have his face buried in the newspaper. And uh, she couldn't get a word out of him edgewise. Every day, same thing. He'd finish eating his uh, breakfast and go on to work, kiss her goodbye, and that was about it. So one morning, she thought she would try to get his attention a little bit. And so while he was eating his breakfast and had his face buried in the newspaper, she said, dear, do you know what today is? And uh, quickly he thought and said to himself, he said, no, I don't know what today is. Did I miss her birthday? Is it her anniversary? I don't know what it is. But he didn't want her to know that. So he said, oh, yes, dear, of course I know what today is. So he quickly finished his uh, breakfast and put down his newspaper, kissed his wife, went on to work. And all the way out to work, he tried to keep thinking, now, what is today? I don't think it's her birthday, but I could be wrong. I don't think it's her anniversary, but I'm not positive of that. So to cover his bases, when he got to work, he called the florist and ordered some flowers to be delivered that day. And then he decided, that's not enough. I'm going to take her to a good restaurant for dinner. And then after that, uh, we're going to go to a show. So he got reservations for the show and the dinner, called his wife, said, Dear, uh, would you go out with me tonight to a special dinner and to a show afterwards? She said, Oh, I'd love to. So they did. And she enjoyed the flowers so much and really enjoyed the meal and the show they went to. And after they got home late that evening and got into bed, and he was cuddling with her and she looked, he looked over and he said, Well, dear, did you have a good day today? She said, I had the best groundhog day I've ever had in my life. <laughs> you know, sometimes, sometimes we forget. We forget what the main thing is, don't we? And uh, sometimes men are like that, but I hope you're not like that. And we want to read about a situation like that in our Bible lesson today. In, first, uh, in the chapter 25 of Matthew, starting at the first verse, it says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were sensible. When the foolish took the lamps, they didn't take olive oil with them. But the sensible ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. Since the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout. Here's the groom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish ones said to the sensible ones, Give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. The sensible ones answered, No, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell and buy oil for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived. Then those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. But he replied, I assure you, I do not know you. Therefore, be alert because you don't know either the day 
for the hour. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the goodness of your word, the blessing of your word. Let it be for us today, O Lord, a ray of hope, a light of instruction, a word of encouragement, maybe even, Lord, a word of conviction. But, O Father, we pray that you will speak, that your servants may hear, and that you will speak especially to those you're calling to be in your family. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. What could be happier than a wedding? You know, in the life of the average Jewish person in Jesus' day, there were two times where great happiness and parties were appropriate. The first one was when somebody had a baby. I don't know if they called it a baby shower, probably not, but they would have a gathering and people would celebrate the birth of the new baby and they would have its dedication and they would just enjoy that time together. The second happy time in the life of the average person was a wedding. It was an honor to be invited to a wedding, such as we see in John chapter 2 when Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the weddings in those days, not quite like the weddings in these days. In our days, there's a lot of preparation made for the way the ceremony looks. Now, believe me, I've been a part of hundreds of weddings. And I've, I've dealt with hundreds of brides who said, you know, we've got to have it just right. And everybody's got to wear the right clothes, and everybody's got to stand in the right place, and the whole thing takes about 15 minutes or less, and then they have the rest of their lives to get over it. But, uh, but what happens at our weddings is the emphasis is not on the ceremony. The emphasis is not, on, is, is not on the eventual marriage. The emphasis is on the wedding itself. You've got to have your reception at the right place. You've got to have the right food. And I'm not opposed to those things, but I try to help couples to, to realize there's a whole lot more to it than standing up and saying your vows and committing yourselves to each other. It's a lifetime. And so Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, uses one of the commonest illustrations possible when he talks about his coming. And that illustration, of course, is the wedding. But in the wedding ceremony, as they did it then, we see a picture of salvation at least in three ways, and I want to show you those three ways. If you've got your notes, you can follow along with me. The first way we see a picture of our salvation in the wedding, as it was done in Jesus' day, was the first thing that happened was that the bride and the groom were betrothed to each other. Now, this betrothal was kind of like an engagement, but it was much more detailed and much more committed than our engagement process. For instance, when Joseph and Mary were betrothed and he found out she was pregnant, what was he going to do? What was his first thought? I've got to divorce this woman. Divorce her? You haven't even married yet? No. But in those days, being betrothed was almost like being married, and to get out of a betrothal, there had to be a divorce. And so it was a very serious matter. And just as the groom and the bride became betrothed, being saved means that you and the Lord Jesus Christ become inseparable in your spiritual commitment. Being saved is not like joining a club. Being saved is not just going through a ritual, though we have rituals around it like people making a profession of faith or people getting baptized or people joining a church or whatever it may be. And so here we find in the wedding ceremony in Jesus' day, it is the groom and the bride who are the centerpiece, and that union of those two in the betrothal is similar to our salvation experience. 
The second thing we see in the scripture and in the ancient ritual of marriage is that the groom himself is responsible for the wedding party and the wedding feast, what we would call the reception. And in this heavenly feast uh, that there's a picture of, we read about it in the book of Revelation where when God calls all of his children home, that is at the end of time, the last day of history has occurred, there will be a feast in heaven. Aren't you glad for that? Yes, indeed. We Baptists know how to meet, greet, and eat, right? And so there will be a wedding feast, and it's called the wedding feast of the Lamb because Jesus, the Lamb of God, will be united as a groom with his church, which is the bride. And I don't know what kind of food they're going to serve him, but I'm sure uh, that you're going to like it. I mean, it may be something that you've never heard of, and certainly it's not like an earthly recipe, but God has a feast prepared for those who know him. And so the groom in the ancient days would prepare food because, you know, in those days, weddings would last sometimes as long as seven days or maybe even longer in some occasions. And it was quite an affront to your family if you had the wedding feast and you ran out of food or you ran out of wine. And that's the whole subject of John chapter 2 where Jesus went to the feast in Cana and they ran out of wine and it was going to be a great embarrassment. And so Jesus' mother came to him and, and asked him to do something and he turned the water into wine. What a beautiful picture of what it's like humanly to celebrate and an even more beautiful picture of what it's going to be like one day in heaven when we join the heavenly chorus at the wedding of the Lamb. So here we have the betrothal, we have the wedding feast that's prepared by the groom, and then here's the third part that's so vivid in this scripture. We see the groom comes for the bride and her mates and takes them to his house for the ceremony. Now, you know, in our earthly weddings, what usually happens, the first thing that happens after the guests are all seated is that the preacher comes out with the groom and the best man. Any of y'all ever see that happen? Y'all don't like to raise your hands. I'm not, I'm not going to get you in trouble here. Okay. And uh, I've done literally hundreds of weddings. And uh, almost without exception, they've been done that way. Now, occasionally, there'll be someone who has a little different arrangement. And, and one time, I decided, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to plan a wedding that's going to reflect the ancient custom and the coming of Jesus. And I've only had two or three takers on this in, in hundreds of weddings. And here's the way this wedding goes. Instead of the groom and the bride coming in separately... Uh, we have the wedding to start with all the attendants coming in. You know, the bridesmaids and the groomsmen come in, take their places. And then simultaneously, the bride comes down the aisle on this side behind her parents. The groom comes down the side on this side behind his parents, and they both stop at the head of the aisles. And then the groom walks across the front and collects his bride and asks her parents if they would release her to him in marriage. And, of course, they do. I haven't seen one reject that yet, but anyway. <laughs> and then the bride and the groom come to the middle for the wedding and sort of makes this biblical case the groom comes after the bride. And that's the way the tradition is. And, of course, second coming of Jesus, that's the way it's going to be. The bride is not going to go to meet Jesus. Jesus is coming to collect his bride. And when Jesus comes back, the Bible says, we saw this last week, he'll send out angels to the four corners of the earth and they will bring all those together who are saved into the presence of Christ and that's when the dead in Christ will rise first and we will all be caught up together with the Lord in the air. And then the wedding ceremony itself will take place 
and then the festivities will last, and I'm sure there was music and probably dancing as well as the wine and as well as the food, and wonderful time. That was the wedding in those days. That pictures our salvation. But notice there are some things about the wedding that we don't hold to that much today. For instance, the bride and her attendants waited until the groom appeared before they came. I've done lots of weddings, as I said. Many of those church weddings, the bride will always tell them on the night of the rehearsal, okay, girls, I want you here tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Why so early? Well, they've got to do their hair. And, and usually they've had their nails done already, sometimes they're hairy, but they've got to get dressed and they've got to make sure everything is just right and they've got to take a lot of pictures, a lot of pictures. And about the grooms, well, they're supposed to be here about 3.30 or 4. They don't need as many pictures and they usually come already dressed, you know. I mean, it's hard to make up perfection. Once you got it, guys, you got it, right? I mean, <laughs> but no, you know, I'm just teasing about that. But the point of it is, it's all about the groom. In the, Old, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, especially in Jesus' day, where in our day, it's mostly about the bride. And I tell these young men in pre-marriage counseling, you've got to learn this phrase, and the more you learn to say this, the better off you'll be. And this phrase is, yes, dear. Yes, dear. And especially about the wedding. So when the groom appeared, all the invited guests who had been invited, they had to be prepared to come at that moment. Now, keep in mind, in those days, there were no clocks they didn't have any wrist versions of a sundial that you could just pull out all of a sudden and tell what time it was. So they would say it's on a certain day, and, and about this time we're going to have it ready, but you be prepared, and when it's all fixed, we'll send for you. And that's the way it was. And you see it in this story. Only when things were prepared, only when everything was ready, only when all was right would the groom and his men come and collect the bride and her maids. And then, as we see in the story, all who came to the party late were not allowed to go in. Did you know that? That is an old custom, even in this country today. We don't follow it. But I know that some of you have heard this, and maybe you even practice this. That when the wedding starts, that is when the bride comes down and, and she comes out of those doors and those doors are closed, nobody else is supposed to be allowed into the wedding. Now, I know a lot of times in churches like this that has a balcony, when those doors are closed to the lower level of the sanctuary, you can sit in the balcony, but you can't sit in the main floor. That's custom. Now, why it's that way, I don't know, but that's the way it was in the days of Jesus. And so we usually let them all come in because, you know, I want the usher to take up a good offering at the wedding. Got to get the bride and the groom on a good start. But in this parable, there is one unexpected feature that probably if you hadn't read about this in the Bible, you'd not know about it. And it is the parable that is about oil. That's the main feature of this parable. Did you notice that? Sure, the groomsmen are coming after the bridesmaids. They're going to the wedding party and the door's going to be shut. But why do you think oil would figure into this parable in such a big fashion? Well, notice how oil was used in the Old Testament. The Bible instructs uh, Moses in Exodus 30 that he is supposed to anoint with oil certain artifacts, certain furniture, and certain people. And so he would anoint the tabernacle when it was completed. The outside of the tabernacle, the inside of the tabernacle, the building materials of the tabernacle, the furniture in the tabernacle. And then he was supposed to anoint the priests, Aaron and his sons, who were the first priests. 
And they would receive this anointing on their head. They would either pour or rub oil on their head. And then they would anoint the ephod, which was like a, a breastplate, I think, that they would wear over themselves. And it had 12 gemstones embedded in it. And that was representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the priests and the tabernacle itself and the table for the showbread and the, the Ark of the Covenant and the candlesticks, everything, the censers were anointed with oil. And then they also began to anoint all the kings with oil. We see a good example of this in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when David is anointed as the king to succeed Saul. God said to Samuel, the prophet in those days, I want you to go to Bethlehem. I want you to go to the house of Jesse. I've chosen from his sons a new one to be the king over Israel, and I want you to anoint him. And so Samuel, with a little fear and trembling, lest King Saul would find out what he was doing, went to Bethlehem, went to the house of Jesse, and said, Jesse, God has told me to come to you because one of your sons has become the king after Saul. And Jesse perked up and said, oh, man, what an honor. And so he began to prep his sons and get them ready to come out before Samuel so Samuel could pick the one that God said to pick. And all the sons came by him and said, hey, you sure these are the only sons you got? None of these are the one. He said, oh, well, the youngest is out in the fields keeping watch over the sheep. He's not the brightest. He's not the best. But okay, I'll go get him. So he went and got David. And when Samuel saw David, the Lord said to Samuel, this is the one. God sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outer appearance, but God does what? God looks on the heart. And so then Samuel took his flask of oil, and he anointed David to be the next king of Israel. And you know the story of how David had uh, killed Goliath later, and how David had become a friend of Jonathan, and, and Saul found out that David was probably the anointed one and tried to kill him. It took him quite a struggle, but he came the, became the great king. And throughout the Old Testament, when people think about the shepherd king of Israel, they're thinking of David because he was such a great leader for the people. Now, oil is used in those ways in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see one example how oil was used for healing. You may not be familiar with this verse. It's in James 5.14. And it says this, If any of you are sick, let him call on the elders of the church and have them come and anoint him with oil, that his sins may be forgiven and he may be healed. Have you ever done that? That's what the Bible says to do. And in case you're wondering, I do have a small bottle of olive oil. And I keep it handy so that if anyone in the church calls for me as an elder of the church to come and anoint them, I will do it. And I have done it on many occasions. And so never fail to take the Bible seriously when it talks about something like that. However, I have something else to tell you. Anointing with oil is often in the Bible a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Oil itself, not just the anointing, but the oil itself is a symbol of the Holy Spirit of God. And so in the Old Testament days when they were anointing the tabernacle and they were anointing the furniture, they were anointing the priests and the kings, it was all a symbol that God's Holy Spirit was going to be on those things and in those people for the work that they were going to do for God's sake. And so we need to recognize that oil is not just a fuel for lamps. It's not just a, a substance to use in cooking. It has a deeper significance in the lives of people. Now, how does that work? 
What, what do we think about the Holy Spirit in this particular case? Well, I remember when I was a little kid in church, we used to sing this song, Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. Anybody else remember that song? Yeah. Anybody ever sing, Give me petrol in my Chevy, keep me running hot? And no, you don't remember that one, do you? But anyway, you get the point. Why did I ask God, would I ask God in that song, Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning? Because oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Oil is a way of saying the Holy Spirit lives in me. It is the oil of God. It is the person of God. It is the presence of Jesus in my life. And, of course, in this parable, here were these ten virgins. Five of them had brought with them a flask of oil. Even though they might have had a little dip of oil in their lamp itself, when they got up to trim their lamps, that is, they cut off the burn part of the wicks, the five foolish virgins realized it's dark. It's past dark 30 and we're going to need some oil. And we got to borrow some, and the foolish ones couldn't get oil from the wise ones because the wise knew if they gave their oil to the foolish ones, they wouldn't have enough for themselves. Five got in, five did not get in because the five that got in had oil, and those who didn't get in didn't have oil. So let me ask you the question. Do you have oil in your lamp today? Do you have oil in your lamp? What am I asking? Do you have in your life the presence of the Holy Spirit of God? That's what it's really all about. So when you have the oil, when you know the Spirit of God lives within you, you understand that you're saved and you're going to go to heaven. But if you don't have the oil, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not His. And you can't go in. You can't get into the wedding. Without oil, one could not even enter the wedding feast because even though the bridesmaids were dressed appropriately, though they acted appropriately, they didn't have oil. Just this week, I, I read in the newspaper an article uh, about a woman, and her name is, let's see, her name is Kim Thien Lee. She was uh, arrested by the Board of Pharmacy in California because for 10 years she had practiced pharmacy without being licensed. Yeah, she said that she had attended Creighton University, but when they contacted Creighton University, they didn't have any record of her ever graduating. And when she was asked about giving her license number for being a licensed pharmacist, she had always looked up two license numbers that people had last names similar to hers, but not hers. And in 10 years as a pharmacist and even as a pharmacy supervisor, she had been a part of filling over 750,000 prescriptions and she wasn't a pharmacist. She wore the lab coat. She knew the language. She probably could count pretty good too. You know, they have to count out the pills. But she wasn't the real deal. And so they took her to court. And she said, you know, me and my son would appreciate it very much if you could just forget about this. I don't think they did. I don't think we should. And so here she looked the part, she dressed the part, she acted the part, and probably people could not tell the difference between her and a registered pharmacist. The board finally caught up with her, and they knew the difference. You can dress the part of a Christian. You can look like a Christian, act like a Christian, talk like a Christian, smell like a Christian, come to church like a Christian, give money like a Christian, serve like a Christian. But unless you have the Holy Spirit... You won't go into the Father's presence at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so these women were shut out. They couldn't come in. The steward of the gate said, I don't know you. All of them were invited, but the oil 
was the decisive factor. The screen, I think, has the scripture reference. It's Romans 8, beginning at verse 9. Listen to these three verses as I read them for you. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. Did you get that? Hear it again. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. So the biggest question today that we get from this parable is this question, do you have the Spirit? Do you have dwelling in your human life the Holy Spirit of God? Let me give you two perspectives on the Holy Spirit. And the first perspective is how do you get the Spirit? And the second perspective is now that I've got the Holy Spirit, what does it mean for the way I live? There was a controversy in the church somewhere back in the 60s, 1960s, last century. Some of you were around at that time. And it was called the Charismatic Movement, or more properly it was known theologically as the Neo-Pentecostal Movement. And that was a movement that resurrected what it meant to be filled with the Spirit and to exercise spiritual gifts, especially what we would call the sign gifts, like speaking in tongues and healing people, raising the dead. And some in that movement went on to say that it isn't enough that you've become a Christian. Now that you've become a Christian, you need the mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as evidence that you've had the mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit, you will do at least one thing, uh, probably more than anything else, you'll probably speak in tongues. And some of you will do miracles, and some of you will have words of knowledge, and some of you will have words of prophecy, and, and some of you will heal the sick. And it went on and on like that. I was involved uh, in learning about that when I was in seminary. We had a man in our campus who claimed to had the baptism. And he was holding little sessions where he would speak in tongues and let people record it even. Let me give you a couple of thoughts on that movement. I'm not saying that nobody got anything good out of that. The whole church has profited from that. But listen, the Bible gives no evidence or indication that if you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to speak in tongues. The example given for speaking in tongues is Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, Peter and others stood and preached in tongues. Literal translation of that word in the Greek, glossolalia, is the word language. And what happened, Peter preached and other disciples there preached in languages that people in the crowd actually spoke. It would be like somebody in our service today standing up and starting to speak in Italian or French, or German, or Spanish, or Chinese, or Hindi, or some other language that they hadn't learned. And the only reason they did that was so people in the crowd could hear the gospel in their own language. And the Bible says that day 3,000 were saved. 
So if somebody is going to speak in tongues, which was the favorite sign of those in the Neo-Pentecostal movement, you have to not only recognize that it means languages that people have learned, but later in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, Paul laid down some rules for what it was like if you're going to speak in tongues. What did he say? He said, if you have a service and somebody has a tongue, let him speak only if there is an interpreter present. Paul said, if you speak in a tongue and nobody understands it, it doesn't, doesn't edify anybody. doesn't help anybody but the speaker. Therefore, if somebody wants to speak in tongues and there is an interpreter, let him speak, let the interpreter give the message, and well and good. If no interpreter, no tongues. And then he said, if somebody has a tongue, let only two or three speak in tongues and then only one at a time. Now listen, I've been around tongues just a little bit. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that the women should be silent in the church. And you see, most places where I've been, it's the women who want to speak in tongues. Yeah. I don't know about you. And so Paul said, no, no, women aren't supposed to speak in church. Let them be silent. Now, whether you agree with that or not, maybe he was just talking about tongues. I think for most cases, that invalidates the idea of tongues being a strict example now, there may be a certain prayer language that some people have, well and good. I don't have that language. If you have it, I'm not condemning you. I'm simply saying that's not the same thing that happened in Acts chapter 2 as the gift of tongues. So how do you get the Holy Spirit? If it's not by some special touch, by some special person, if it's not by some special prayer in the laying on of hands, how in the world do you get the Holy Spirit? Well, go back with me in your thinking to John chapter 3. Remember Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night? He was a Pharisee. He was a well-respected man. He probably was a man of some wealth. And he didn't want to come to Jesus in the daytime, I believe, because he didn't want anybody to see him. He wanted to have this private so if something didn't work out right, he wouldn't be accused of collaborating with Jesus. So when he came to Jesus, he said, Teacher, it seems to us that you are someone from heaven that God is speaking through us today, to us today. And Jesus looked him in the eye. He said, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You can't see it. You can't enter it for sure, and you can't even see it. Nicodemus said, what? I've got to go back into my mother's womb and be born the second time? Jesus said, no, no. You need to be born of the water and the spirit. And he went on to explain something about the way the Spirit moves and the Spirit works until finally he comes to that great verse in John 3, name 16. You know that one? I'm sure you do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever does what? Believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. For those who believe are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the only begotten Son of God. So the whole idea about spiritual birth is captured in those 18 verses of John 3. And what we see is that when you believe or trust or get saved by believing in Jesus, it's actually a transaction whereby you say to God, in essence, God, I know that I'm not worthy or fit to come into your kingdom. I have sinned against you. I turn my life over to you, and I want you to come into me and into my life and fill me and save me and forgive me of all my sins. You may not think of all those words, but the idea is that you're totally surrendering to Jesus 
And at that instant where your heart becomes right with God and you ask for him to come in, he comes in. Who comes in? God, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And at that instant, you're born again. You're saved. You're converted. You're filled with the Spirit. And your life will never be the same. The problem I think we have in modern Christianity is that a lot of people have reduced that spiritual transaction to a formula, a ceremony. Being saved means going to a class, a confirmation class, and reciting the right words from the catechism. Being saved means joining the church. Being saved means getting baptized. Being saved means taking your first communion. Being saved means being a good church member, giving money to the church, doing things for the church. Listen, you can do all those things and still be lost if you don't have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. So do you have Christ dwelling in you? How do you know that? What's the proof of it? Let me give you the second thing. How do I know How do I know that the Spirit of God dwells in me? Number one, have you had that experience? What happened when you got saved? As best you know, as best you can remember, as best you can put yourself in the mindset of what it was like when you became a Christian, did you surrender your life to Jesus? Did you give yourself to him? Did you receive him to be in you and to save you and to forgive you and to become the Lord of your life? You see, I think some people just try to buy a ticket to heaven. They might recite the right words. They might come down an aisle and shake the preacher's hand, repeat the prayer after him, but there's nothing in the heart. I'm just mouthing the words. I'm just going through the ritual. And that happens. I've counseled with folks who years later come to me and say, Pastor, I'm not sure I really got saved. I mean, I went forward in the church and I prayed with the preacher and I got baptized, but I don't know that I'm really saved. What about you? What happened on that day when you received Christ? Proof number two, I believe because Christ came into you at salvation, if indeed he did, there will be a noticeable difference in your life. No, you won't be perfect, but you're on your way toward it. You know, let's just put a graph up here. Just imagine this being a graph, and this is one axis, axis, and this is the next axis, and you're starting over here in this corner when you're just saved and you hope your spiritual growth will just climb steadily till you die. You know, that's the ideal Christian life, isn't it? But most of us don't experience that, do we? Most of us go up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. We, we sometimes forget God and go our own way. Sometimes God has to discipline us for whatever the reason. But listen, let's just say you've been saved for 10 years or 5 years or 40 years. From where you started to where you are today, has there been any change in your life? Is anything different because of Jesus? Do you have the hope that lies within you that you are his and he is yours? And you say, well, I can't see anything has changed about my life. I was a good person before I got saved, and I'm still a good person. I do the best I can, really. You see, if there's been no change in your life since you received Christ, maybe you didn't get Christ. Maybe you got a good feeling. You see, ask the question. And here's the third one. And this probably is more important today than any of the first two. When you ask the Lord, the Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, when you say, Father, would you please tell me if you're in me? Would you please give me a witness? Somehow let me know that you're with me. And when you get alone with God in the silence of your heart, 
and you ask that question, I believe he will answer. I believe he'll tell you whether or not he's in you. When I first heard this and realized, yeah, that's true, I was with a group of preachers, and we were all invited to pray in silence just to ask God to tell us and show us if he was with us. And after we prayed for a little while, the leader of our conference says, now, men, did anybody have any direct answers from God? One preacher spoke up, and he said, when I prayed and asked God if he was with me, I saw a picture of a man hanging on a cross, and I knew it was Jesus. And it was God saying to me, yes, I'm with you, I love you, I accept you, you're my child. Have you ever asked God that question? I know the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and teaches us to, to do right things and helps us to do right things. There are a lot of other things the Spirit does. But just these three I mentioned. First, there was a, a, a transaction that was a spiritual transaction. Secondly, there's been a change in your life. And now you can go to God in prayer and you can ask him the question. I believe if you're serious, if you're honest, he'll answer the question. Why don't we try it right now? Let's just bow our heads for a minute. And right now in the silence of this moment with you alone in your thoughts, why don't you ask God the question, God, are you in me? Does the Holy Spirit really live in me? Help me to understand the truth. And just wait and see how God answers. Oh, Lord, there are some times we don't act like we're saved, and there are times when we're not conscious of your presence. And there are times, Lord, when we disappoint you and do the wrong things. But, Father, you said you would never leave us or forsake us. Lord, even though our flesh is weak, you said that your spirit would never leave us and that you were ours forever. Help us today to claim that promise and to act on that promise. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want to tell you one more historical event before we have our conclusion this morning. In 1914, an Englishman named Sir Ernest Shackleton who had already been knighted because of his exploration in the Antarctic wanted to make a name for himself and set records for himself. He originally had wanted to discover and be the first person to reach the South Pole. But in between some of his flights and some of his uh, ships, uh, he, he couldn't make it. It had already been done. So he imagined an exercise where he and his men would travel across the continent of Antarctica from one side to the other and go to the South Pole and then leave the South Pole and keep going to the other side of the Antarctic continent. And so he got supporters and outfitted his ship known as the Endurance, left England and sailed south to South Georgia Island off the coast of South America. There they fitted their ship with all the supplies they needed. They rested themselves a little bit. They had dogs with them that could be sled dogs to pull their sleds across the snow and the ice. And when they had everything ready, they set off from South Georgia Island for the Arctic, Antarctic continent. They reached the continent and found that the ice flow was much more heavy than they had expected. They didn't have satellites in those days. They didn't have these weather prognostications that we have these days. 
And so that when they got to the continent, before they could actually get to the land, their ship was caught up in the ice. And it wouldn't go forward, it wouldn't go backward, and they didn't know what to do. And so fearing that their ship could be crushed by the ice, they abandoned the ship, took off all their supplies, their dogs, and everything they could scrabble, especially the lifeboats. And sure enough, after 10 months of waiting to see what was going to happen, their ship was crushed and sank to the bottom of the sea. There they were near the Arctic, the Antarctic, and there uh, had no ship, and all they had were these lifeboats. Well, Shackleton got out his maps and began to plot a a way to get out, and the nearest land was actually uh, like an outcrop of rock in the ocean. It was called Elephant Island. And so they loaded the lifeboats with all the men and supplies they could handle. They were able to make it safely to Elephant Island where they disembarked and set up a camp. But that was not near any shipping lane, certainly. And Shackleton knew that unless they did something different, they were going to die there. So Shackleton took two of the lifeboats and five other men, and they set sail for 1,300 kilometers away to South Georgia Island, where they had recently replenished their supplies. This was in April of 1915. So it had already been several months without having their ship. And so Shackleton and his men braved this rough sea and the stormy seas. This is the wintertime in the Antarctic in the southern hemisphere. And finally, after six days of difficulty, they made it to South Georgia Island. They actually landed on a beach of rocks and their ships, their boats broke up. And they got on the land and discovered they were on the opposite side from the city, the town, where they could get supplies and help. There was nobody there. So they had to cross snow-covered, ice-covered mountains. It took them about three to four days to do that without mountaineering equipment. And finally, they reached the town on South Georgia Island and let people know what had happened. Well, Shackleton had told his men on Elephant Island that he'd be back for them, not to lose hope. And day after day, they would think, wonder if this is the day. Wonder if this is the day. Finally, on his fourth attempt in August of 2016, Shackleton made it back to pick up his men. He was able to rescue every man who was on that island, and all of them survived the trip and made it back home to Europe. One of the mates who was left on Elephant Island, who was left in charge of the men, was asked the question, how did you keep your men in good morale, and how did you keep them built up all that time while you were waiting for Shackleton? He said, well, I thought about it, and so every morning I would wake the men And I would have them pack their gear and pack up everything we had by telling them, you know, today could be the day that the captain is coming back. Every day for all those months and all those weeks, he gave them that message. And you know what? They actually believed it. And one day, the captain came and they were all safe. I can say the same thing to you today. Jesus is coming one day. You've heard that probably all your life if you've been around the church. But he really is. He's coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's stand up together. We're going to sing our invitation song. Brian's going to lead us. If you're not ready and you'd like to be ready, I'd love to pray with you and talk with you. If you're not sure you're ready, get ready. Get right with God. Spend some time alone. Spend some time with some Christian brother or sister and let them help you get ready for the coming 